Hi, guys. Welcome to the How I Raised It podcast, the show where you get an inside, unfiltered look at how real entrepreneurs raise capital for their businesses. I'm your host, Nathan Beckard, and today's episode is a little different. We chat with Jessica Matthews, a senior writer at Fortune Magazine. Jessica writes the popular term sheet column, which covers startups and venture capital. We discuss what a day in the life of a journalist is like, her take on industries that are hot, how to pitch a journalist, and more. If you're tuning into this podcast to learn how to raise capital for your business, I've created a super valuable free welcome package for you. It includes a list of 2,500 investors who don't require a warm intro, plus 200 questions that investors are going to ask you. This is really going to help you get ready to raise capital. To get access to this, please leave us a nice review in the Apple iTunes store, click all the stars, and then email us at info at and I'll send that package to you right away. Last but not least, if you enjoy this conversation and think someone else would too, please share it with them and hit that subscribe button to get all our latest episodes. Thank you. Now sit back and enjoy the chat with Jessica. Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today, I have Jessica Matthews, a senior writer at Fortune Magazine. We're going to do a little something different today, uh, and she's in Bentonville, Arkansas. How's your day going? It is going pretty well. I cannot complain. Excellent, excellent. I haven't been to Bentonville. Is it a? It's a medium-sized town, medium-sized city. It's what is it? really small. It's about. 30,000 people, I want to say, um, most well-known for having Walmart's headquarters here. Sure. So that and a lot of mountain biking, and that's about it. Cool. Walmart <laughs> no. and mountain biking. Well, right. those are good it's things. Yeah. <laughs> have you, how long have you lived there? Um, I moved here in 2020 um, during the pandemic. It was one of those spontaneous moves out of New York, um, and I, I really liked it so far. It's a special place. So I haven't left. <laughs> well, given your job working at Fortune, I'm assuming you didn't go there to work at Walmart. So did you go there for the mountain biking? <laughs> I did not. I. <laughs> it, it's kind of a funny story. I just decided to go work somewhere random for a month. I didn't have a <laughs> home situation in New York. And my sister asked if I wanted to just go pick somewhere in lived there for a month. So we randomly picked Bentonville, Arkansas, mostly because the Airbnb prices were really affordable and there was a lot of stuff to do outside. Uh-huh. And a couple of weeks in, I just looked up the cost of living here and how much it would be to rent an apartment here compared to where I was in Brooklyn. And that it kind of became a done deal. <laughs> I just decided to move somewhere else for a while. And I've gotten into biking since moving here. Interesting. You kind okay. of have to. <laughs> Got it. Cool. Interesting. I'll have to check it out sometime. Well, let's get into it. So what do you do exactly? Yeah, so I am the term sheet writer over at Fortune Magazine. That's our daily deal-making newsletter. So I'm writing about things like venture capital, startups, private equity, IPOs, or currently the lack thereof. Um, Basically everything having to do with deals. And it's a newsletter that goes out to about 127,000 readers a day. And Yeah, I've been um, writing the newsletter since Lucinda Shen left us for Axios back in December. Interesting. So that was my next question. How did you get to this position? Were you always a 
journalist? Were you always a financial uh, and markets writer or, you know, kind of how'd you end up here? Yeah, so I've actually spent my whole career in business journalism. I started as an intern at CNBC, then um, was an intern with the Dow Jones News Fund and was randomly placed at a trade publication called Financial Planning. Um, So it's a wealth management magazine specifically for financial advisors. And I wrote about um, the RAA custodians there. So Charles Schwab, former VTD Ameritrade, Schwab bought it. Um, BNY Mellon Pershing and Fidelity. And I was there for three years. Um, it was a great experience, a great magazine, learned a lot about registered investment advisors, which has ended up being helpful covering venture capital as a lot of VC firms register as REAs as well. Um, but then I moved over to Fortune back in June of 20, 2021. Um, and was general finance reporter there and then took over term sheet in December. Cool. Was it competitive to take over term sheet? Was there like a, a competition or bake off or you just happened to be in the right place at the right time? So I had actually been writing the IPO and SPAC section of the newsletter for a few months when Lucinda was writing it. Um, 2021 was such a crazy year. Um, and she was having trouble keeping up with all of the filings because, I mean, there were dozens. Um, so I, yes, so I was doing that for, I can't remember exactly when I started helping out with that. I think it was some point in the fall, maybe September or October. So I've been doing that for a few months and I really enjoyed it. So when the position opened up, I just sort of raised my hand and they had been looking for someone. So it was kind of the right place at the right time. That's great. So what what is a day in the life of a journalist? Now, I, I should preface this. You're our first journalist on here. We've had 200 plus founders. We've had a dozen or so venture firms, venture capital people, uh, but never a journalist. So you're my first. So what does a day in the life of a journalist look like? Well, first of all, honored to be the first journalist. And I can think of some more because I think some of us have interesting things to say. Hopefully mm-hmm. I'll add something to the conversation. Um a day in the life of a journalist. I, well, I'd say, first of all, it's a lot of emails. I get pitched things all day long. So I'm mm-hmm. probably, I probably get 300 to 400 emails a day. Um, most of them aren't very interesting, to be honest. Um, but no, I'd say the most important part of my job is just sourcing. So getting on the phone with people, doing interviews. I spend a lot of time reading financial documents as well. So whether it be SEC filings or form ADVs. Um, but yeah, bread and butter is just, spending time talking to people. I also read a lot. So I read a lot of other news outlets. I read a lot of blogs. Um, I spend probably too much time on Twitter, although I don't write as much on Twitter as maybe I should, um, but I read a lot on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it is it long days? I mean, are you up early reading SEC filings for two yeah. hours and then taking those 300 pitches and then, you know, <laughs> or is it so I usually start my day at 6.30, but it's also, so we're in a bit of a period of transition with term sheet because we're starting to send it out at 8.15 Eastern time instead of in the afternoon. Okay. Um, okay. So a little bit of a flex period. So my schedule is a little off, but um, yeah, I typically start the day at about 6.30 AM and yeah, I honestly, I don't, 
I don't really have a specific schedule that I keep to every day. I mean, some days I wake up and immediately start reading SEC filing. Some days it'll be in the afternoon. Some days I won't read them at all and give myself a break. So it, it just kind of, it kind of depends on what's happening, what stories I'm looking into. Um, I try to narrow my focus as much as possible and stay focused on what specifically I'm working on, if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. When you're reading SEC filings, not to go too deep into the weeds, because I think I'll put our readers to, or our listeners to sleep, but what are you <laughs> reading the SEC filings for? What are you looking for in those? There's always, not always, sometimes they're just boring, but usually there's some kind of interesting tidbit um, hidden underneath a lot of legalese, whether it be some kind of regulatory investigation that hasn't yet been disclosed mm. uh, if it's if this is a public company or if they're planning to go public or um, sometimes they'll reveal different layoffs that have taken place um, or um, the cap tables are always really interesting because um, sometimes there's undisclosed investors. So obviously with the SEC filings, it really depends on a company being in the process or already having been public um, mm -hmm. with the with the form ADVs. Um, that those are really interesting, just looking at the different conflicts of interest between investors and, and an investment firm. Um, so I'll, I'll look at those as well. That that's, what is that for? You said form ADV. Oh yeah. So registered investment advisors have to file a form ADV um, with the SEC on a periodic basis. And it's just a disclosure that goes out to investors. It's meant, um, it's meant to protect investors and have them be aware of the different parties that they work with, who has custody of their assets, um, relationships they have, and then just conflicts of interest that the firm has with its investors. So a lot of venture capital firms aren't a registered investment advisor because they don't choose to register that way. So it sort of depends on how you want to structure your fund and your company, but there's been a trend of venture capital firms over the past few years starting to register with the SEC just because it allows you to invest in a different way and on a more rolling basis. That's my understanding of it anyway. Well, I guess one more question about just sort of the day in life and then let's get into some other topics, but is your basic job to create the newsletter every day or are you working on longer thematic stories right i mean what's what's sort of the overall you know goals i guess yeah so my day-to-day -day job is to get term sheet out yeah um, but i'm always working on something on the side as well um largely just because there's other things that i find interesting or an editor will assign me a story so i'm usually working on a couple things outside of the newsletter as well but they generally tend to be longer feature story. So over 1500 words or so just on something I pitch, something an editor assigns. Um, the topic can vary, but it usually has something to do with what I'm already covering because that's what I have learned a lot about. Yeah. Got it. Interesting. So yeah, I noticed on Twitter, you had, you did a profile of uh, Chris Dixon, um, right? It, maybe tell us just about putting that together or how that come, come about and what it is. Sure. So um, Chris Dixon is really the top crypto investor in the venture capital space. Um, he is he heads up the crypto fund over at Andreessen Horowitz, which oversees more than $3 billion specifically for crypto. PitchBook estimates it at about $6 billion because it also includes um, another fund that has some non-crypto investments as well. But somewhere between 3 to $6 billion 
in assets. So he's a really important investor in the space. Um, and I actually reached out to him about doing a profile in early June. Oh, sorry, not June. Um, it's not June yet. <laughs> and I think it was early March um, and he didn't want to participate in it. So um, my editors and I decided to go ahead with the story anyway. So I reached out to about 50 different people to try to better understand who he is as an investor, who he was as a founder. He founded a couple different companies and just who he is as a person. Um, and so that's kind of a, the what I hope is a comprehensive look at, at who he is a little behind the scenes and outside of just what we see of him on Twitter writing about crypto. Yeah. When you're doing that, is it... How do I phrase this question? Are you sort of looking for some dirt, I guess you could say, or looking for something, you know, juicy or controversial? I mean, obviously you don't want to just write puff pieces because that, you know, probably doesn't lead to clicks and eyeballs, but like, you know, how's, how's that shake out? How do you try and make it enticing and sexy for your readers, but also keep it, you know, <laughs> professional, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess the the first way to answer that is no. I I really am not ever like trying to pull up dirt or be mm -hmm. sprinkling around for dirt on people. I think people ask me a lot, is this a positive or a negative story? And um, I never think about it that way. I usually it's just there's there's someone that is intriguing for whatever reason, whether they you know, are very powerful and important figure or whether they're, they've come up with some kind of really fascinating idea or in the cutting edge of some kind of new innovation or whether they're, they've kind of become a poster child for some kind of broader trend or shift happening in our culture or space. And so I think a lot of people are inherently interesting. And um, so writing a profile about someone, I think, I, I go into it really with a pretty open mind, not really knowing where it's going to take me. And I'm often surprised um, as I'm reporting on someone, um, because of course you uncover things that you would never have imagined. Um, so I, I, I kind of go into like writing a profile specifically, just trying to figure out who someone is, what makes them tick and and then you find things along the way. And if you keep an open mind in, in who you're reaching out to, and in how you're reaching out to them and, and how you go into a conversation. I mean, all different sorts of things come yeah. up. I don't uh, know if that answers your question. Well, you no, know, it does. It makes sense. I, I think that's a good answer. What was maybe the most interesting or, or surprising thing you learned about, about Chris that isn't, you know, maybe common knowledge? Hmm. That's a good question. I honestly think this is sort of a, a weird answer, but I think just that he he seems to be a really big foodie. Mm. Um, and, and I found that really surprising because a, a lot of people said he doesn't really do anything outside of work. And he has like a very um, techie background. He was a coder. Um, he founded a couple startups and just seems very much in that programming world. And I think a lot of times you think of people in that space sort of just getting food delivered to their home and playing video mm -hmm. games, with them, you know, <laughs> but um, he, he, he actually, it seems to cook a lot and, and be, and really love excellent food. And I thought that that was really interesting. That's, that's very interesting. I think, you know, something I'm always telling founders is like, 
you're approaching investors, you are they you're a stranger to them, they're a stranger to you. But if you can, you know, kind of learn what they're about, maybe they're into windsurfing and hey, you are also a windsurfer or some common ground, you know, it just connects, it makes that connection a little more human and powerful. So even that little tidbit, right, that he's <laughs> into food is potentially pretty interesting to folks. Um you know, for, for reasons. Who else have you? I will say um, his Instagram account, he, he would cook with an instant pot and he got really into cooking during COVID. So you can go check out some of the things he's making on there. (laughs) Sure. That's good. Who else, you know, who are some other interesting, colorful, uh, quirky, unique, whatever you want to use, just notable, interesting, VCs or founders that you've interviewed over the years? Who are some of your favorite interviewees? So I think I always struggle a little bit from recency bias, but I would say someone that I found really fascinating was Joe Pratt. He's the CEO of Zero Emission Industries, which mm-hmm. is this green technology company. They um, they made the technology that is powered the first um, hydrogen fuel cell powered um, boat. Anyway, so he's, he's the founder of that. He had been studying hydrogen fuel cells for over two decades and then decided to start a company because he wasn't seeing anyone else doing that. And I always think it's really fascinating when there are people that are in an industry and then find something that needs to be solved and then create something from that rather than setting out to create a company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just, his expertise in the matter and his background coming from labs, studying hydrogen for two decades. I just, he's so much smarter than me. I've learned so much about him, about, about clean power and boats and, and the energy crisis when it comes to this, I mean, even the supply chain, mm-hmm. transporting materials by boat. So yeah, he was a very fascinating person. It's that's a cool space. I don't know too much about it. I'm a big sailor boater, so I'm into that. But I know um, I was just reading Maersk, the big shipping company, is changing their. I think this was on NPR or something. They're changing their fuel choices from diesel. They're looking at hydrogen. They're looking at some other stuff, you know, to become carbon. I don't know if I can say carbon neutral, but you know, much more environmentally friendly. And and like I was just having a conversation with a company today um called seabound that is kind of trying to create zero carbon uh world for logistics and transportation really cool space right and really important (laughs) i hope they figure it out quickly before the planet burns up but that's my political commentary um (laughs) yeah interesting very cool all right let's keep moving a little bit um you know i guess how would you say you kind of view the venture world differently than, you know, maybe a VC or entrepreneur? I would say I'm probably a bit more skeptical. I Mm. think as reporters, we're supposed to be and kind of jump into everything a little skeptical of it, trying to look at the other side. Um, And so I think that there's, especially over the past couple years with so much money flowing into the space, I think there's kind of this eagerness to say that, oh, because there's a lot of money there, there's also a lot of innovation when one does not necessarily translate to the other. And I think there's also a lot of companies that 
might ne not necessarily lead to the funding that they're getting um, or who might not have very innovative technology. They've just put really good UX on top of something that has mm -hmm. already existed for a long time, um, but maybe a struggle to find a customer base. So sometimes it feels like there's a lot more funds and resources out there than is necessary mm. or even good to have. Um, so yeah, I would just say I'm probably a lot more skeptical than the average person in the space who's in it and doing it every day, but I'm also not part of it. Right. I write about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, um, yeah. What, that's great. What, you know, what sectors, I mean, we're at a funny time right now as we're recording this in, in mid-May, uh, stock markets crashing one day, bouncing back the next Bitcoin's plummeting, you know, talks about recession and all kinds of just macro stuff, uh, going on in the world. What, what sectors in the venture world are you seeing as hot, not hot, any other just macro things you're kind of seeing, given that you're, you know, studying this basically from a external perspective on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I would say a big one is green technology. Mm -hmm. I think no matter what market you're in, the world's moving that way. Um, so I think there's so many really, really fascinating things happening with drones especially with the FAA um, really working to update its regulation and things really starting to move forward on that front. I mean, you have huge companies from Walmart to Amazon to Google really starting to buckle down in this. And then you have really interesting players like the Choctaw tribe, who's very involved in drone innovation right now and hmm. working for the FAA to develop that. So I think there's a lot happening with mobility, um, which is, tied to green tech. Um, and it, yeah, I, I'd say that's what's fascinating me a lot right now. I also think that crypto is very intriguing too, but I think there's also a lot of startups that are also doing kind of what I mentioned before, where they're just kind of repackaging things that already exist in a UX. And that also can be really dangerous space just because it's not regulated. So I think there can be a lot of risk to individuals in that space that might not necessarily understand the risks they're taking. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that was, I was going to say my next question, like what, is there anything that's overvalued, overdone, overblown, overfunded, you know, or even just that you're particularly skeptical on? I mean, I guess you're not necessarily skeptical on crypto itself, but maybe there's a little too much too many players in that. I mean, how many coins can there be in, in <laughs> 10 years, right? Like I, and I really still don't, I mean, I understand it all conceptually. I understand NFTs, but I don't really get it. <laughs> you know, like I, I understand it. I just don't get it. All of it. I mean, I get a lot of it, but maybe not all of it. So it's like, I'm skeptical too. Like how many coins will the world need? Right. And stuff like that. Like, um, I don't know. I'm talking too much. Anything <laughs> you're, you're uh, have theses or opinions about or kind of, you know, uh, overblown, overdone, anything like that? I don't know if, if this is anything new. Uh, a lot of people have raised skepticism over this, but I just don't really see how some of the last mile delivery players will become profitable mm -hmm. uh, and make money. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of that. I'd say in general, I think that there's so much opportunity and so much innovation in crypto. And I'm actually 
think that that space is really exciting. It's just a little unclear to me um, exactly how that's going to play out and which players are going to end up still being around in a decade and which ones won't. I think when, especially with regulations so unclear, it's just hard for me to tell. And no one's, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm as good at making the predictions myself. Um, I just try to evaluate what's happening around me, but I would, I'd say I, I'm not really thinking as much about what's coming down the pipeline 20 years, as much as I am thinking what happened 10 years ago at this company and how can I write about it? You know, I'd say as a journalist, I tend to look more into the past than probably most venture capitalists that makes sense yeah actually that totally makes sense um very interesting so well but speaking of like last mile and you mentioned that you know is maybe some of the companies aren't isn't drones part of that right i mean you're seeing you're hearing about drone delivery for the last mile or you know what's the connection no that's a that's an interesting point I, I mean, I think that we still have to see exactly how that is ultimately going to pan out. But I think theoretically that could help solve some of the issues with Last Mile because I think part of the issue there is just it's really expensive to move cars around and deliver things, right? Um, so, I mean, in big cities, you also have runners and you have bikers, but I think that's part of the problem. It's clogging up the roads. So theoretically, should you have you know, a whole team of drones flying food around that could actually move people off the roads and into the air. So if the, if companies can figure out and the FAA can figure out how to make that possible in a safe way, I think that that could be potentially a really interesting development. <laughs> My 11-year-old daughter is obsessed with DoorDash. She wants to DoorDash everything all the time. We're, we're forgot to get a lemon the other day. She's like, we can just order it on DoorDash. I'm like, just let's not, let's not be that family that orders a lemon on DoorDash. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to be that, but I guess it's not necessarily better to get in the car and we are still using gas cars, not electric cars and drive down to Safeway and buy a lemon. So, you know, I don't know, maybe the, the drone with our lemon dropping off. <laughs> solution i don't know i actually used to be um i used to be a an uber delivery person when i lived in new york when i was in college i would um i didn't have a bike at the time but i would run food from place to place um and it it was it was hard to i i have so much respect for people that do that because it was really hard to make much money doing it and the time you make most is in when the weather's really awful um but yeah, I, I had a brief stint doing that. And I think, I, I just think it's hard to make the economics work. It's hard to pay people enough and also not completely overcharge a person who's buying something. Yeah. Well, here's here's a super old timey story. I'll just share for a second. But I remember when I first got a job in downtown San Francisco, I was working at, um, in valuation, doing some investment banking. There was a park near the offices and all the high raises and all the bicycle messengers would hang out there. And so being a bicycle messenger was a real thing. And all the law firms and investment banks and others, I don't even, I'm sure they charge a lot, but they would hire these mostly guys, some girls to, you know, shuttle around like sensitive confidential documents that were really time sensitive. And 
And so they all hung out in this park, like smoking weed, basically in between their messenger gigs. And they all had a kind of look to it. If you've ever, this is going way back, but MTV, uh, real world puck was like a bicycle messenger from San Francisco. You know, like there was this, there's this crew, this population of like bicycle messengers that were kind of hip, kind of edgy. They're all super sprung and wiry because, you know, they're riding 50 miles a day, hundred miles a day. (laughs) But I think that all, they all went away when, you know, Uber and other delivery services came away. But anyway, I guess there's. (laughs) Maybe they'll come back, right? Yeah. Uh, um, Maybe this is their year. This is their year to bring back the bicycle bike messenger king. Um, interesting. Well, I did want to ask one more question. You know, you're like you started off this conversation talking about how you're getting pitched all day long. You know, and and not to give you more email to deal with, but if founders want to get your attention. Um, what's the, what are you looking for? What's the best way of getting your attention? What's catching your eye? And also what is an immediate, you know, turnoff for you? Yeah. Um, so I'd say the majority of the pitches that I do get are from public relations, people who are hired to represent a certain company or account. And so the, a lot of the pitches I get don't feel very authentic. Um, and I guess what stands out to me as someone that just emails me out of the blue about something what responding to me about something that I wrote or just coming to me with something that they've discovered or something that they've been thinking a lot about just emailing me is as I would email someone else or you would email someone else. Um, and I, I just, it's, it's usually pretty apparent when people have self-interested motives at, at heart. And I know that, I mean, that's part, that's a lot of why people are reaching out to me and that's fine. I understand that. Um, but it's, when people are just wanting to engage or chat about something or really just share something that they're very passionate about or interested in or something that they're thinking about a lot, I, that's when it usually draws my attention. Interesting. Interesting. So let's go in a little deeper there. Like, cause founders all, you know, all founders, especially early stage ones that don't maybe have a PR firm want to get covered in the press. Cause that just gives them a boost it's great to walk into a VC meeting showing, you know, you just got covered in Fortune magazine, whatever. Um, so are you, I guess, are you saying, you know, founders should sort of start a dialogue? Like, let me ask it this way. Is it okay for founders to pitch you even if they're more like less PR firm, more authentic, or should they really kind of engage in a, a dialogue with you on other topics in, before pitching you or should they not pitch you? I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's okay I, if, if you know, they really want to share something that they're working on or they have exciting news. I mean, I also like to hear, I write about the news, you know, so when there's updates, I like to hear about them. And we publish a lot of news every day in term sheet, whether it's the latest deals that have happened in the last 24 hours in venture capital or private equity. Um, but I, I would say that I think it's just important for people to realize that journalists don't have an interest in helping someone else promote something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an interest in sharing news with people and, and finding out what's happening and, and sharing that with readers. Um, and like getting to the bottom of like where a story is and what's happening and, and bigger trends and, and holding powerful people to account when necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not really looking to help someone grow their business. So I think just 
realizing what our job is as reporters and kind of taking that into consideration when communicating. It makes sense. sense. What messages do get through to you? Like if we just raised a new round, is that something that you're going to be interested in hearing? Because that is news, right? I mean, if it's maybe big or notable or, or what else? Yeah, I would say things that usually stand out to me are either some kind of story that's really unique or different or unexpected Mm -hmm. um, or something that's kind of indicative of a broader trend or change in in culture or the world around us um that that would really stand out to me like I'm, i'm thinking for instance some of the funding deals in really remote parts of the country are interesting to me because they're indicative of this move outside, not leaving Silicon Valley, but investing outside of it as well into Mm -hmm. smaller parts of the country and investing in, in companies that maybe are doing something with farming or manufacturing and in some of the industries that feel a little unexpected, especially during the pandemic have become much more apparent to everyone how important they are. Um, So I think different, some things like that will stand out to me as as interesting as opposed to, I mean, there's dozens of people announcing a funding round every single day. I see. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, why I, the way I think about it is why, why would readers be interested in this? What's the bigger story? Is it indicative of something else? Yep. Um, What's the bigger story? I like that kind of. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Yeah. Yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's how I think about it. Cause I just, I want to add something insightful, interesting, exciting, um, challenging into people's inboxes every day. That's what I try to do with the newsletter. Um, and, and I don't want to just put something in front of them that they'd expect or that they see 10 times a day already. Yeah. Good. Excellent. All right. I will let you get back to your your work. Um, if people want to sign up for term sheet, where do they go to do that? If people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, if you want to give your email, that's fine. Whatever you want to share, how should people either follow you, reach out to you or subscribe to your stuff? Sure. So my Twitter handle is Jessica K Matthews. Matthews is with one T. Um, and if you go onto my Twitter profile, there's a link, um, in my bio to subscribe to term sheet right there. And I hope you do. Um, and my email is also in there as well. And you can feel free to DM me on Twitter as well. Oh, yeah. I should have asked that. Like, what is the best way to reach you or journalists in general? Is it DMing on Twitter? Is it email? Like, what is there sort of a secret, uh, <laughs> you know, path? <laughs> I don't want to speak for everyone. Um, I I prefer email. I do read all of my emails, even though I do get behind sometimes. Yeah. Um, I generally... I, I sometimes message people on Twitter, but not very often. So I'd say email is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Got it. Excellent. Cool, Jessica. Thanks. This is good. I do. Um, I don't read it every day because I'm always behind myself, but I do read <laughs> myself. And uh, it's always been good. I've actually been reading it for quite a while, for years and years. So it's it's one of my staples. It's good stuff. Um, so keep up the good work. And um yeah, enjoy the the mountain biking of Bentonville, Arkansas. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you having me. All right. Over and out. Thank you. Bye. Bye.